Hello and welcome to another episode of Build Back Better from us at For the Region. I'm really excited today to finally be sitting down with Andy Middleton. Now Andy wears a number of hats, but he's Chief Exploration Officer at TYF Adventure in St. David's in Pembrokeshire and on board with many different organisations across lots of topics, including most notably climate action. Andy, thanks for making time to sit no, and have a chat. To nice here. to see you. So the title of this podcast podcast is Build Back Better. I wonder what does that mean to you in your world? Great, what a lovely question to start with. My, my background for those who kind of don't know any of what I've been up to, so I started TYF close to you know getting off for 35 years ago in the world of adventure and in that time we've taken maybe 200,000 people to play safely in sometimes pretty wild places around the Pembrokeshire coastline. Coasteering and sea kayaking and climbing and all of that kind of stuff. And keeping people safe in the outdoors depends on being good at pattern recognition, understanding risk and responding and like applying the right technical knowledge and the right mindset to, in response to the patterns that you notice. And those patterns could be either where your group is disappearing to over a square mile of ocean in a kayak because you forgot to notice where people were, or it's a change in the weather or loose rock or whatever else it is. So Adventure Guide's job is to notice what's going on and permanently be asking the question, what if? If dawn capsized, now what would I do, et cetera. You're always running through that scenario and the, and the guides who are good at doing it are the ones that are able to take people into the most exciting positions around nature, but do so safely and bring customers back with a beaming smile and some new experiences on their face. And that's how we manage risk. And I guess what interested me in my time on Natural Resources Wales, CCW and National Parks, et cetera, as board member, I realized that government treats risk really differently. So risk management in government is about keeping the big ship of bureaucracy stable. So risk management is about like putting up stabilizers on the side of the boat to make sure it doesn't rock too much. And that's great if your purpose is just to keep a big boat from tipping but it's not a very good approach if you're actually heading into rough water and you might need to be able to move quickly. So the build back better question for me is not about do we build it back better than it was before, but like in the world of adventure, do you build back your systems and your approaches so that they are fit for the conditions in which we find ourselves? So for me, the key thing is not building back a bit better because that's easy to do, 2% better, 3% better, but build back fit for the future. Building back fit for the future means that everything we build back will be guaranteed to deliver on a 1.5 C rise in temperature, as opposed to a build back better plan at the moment is currently scheduled to take us to 3.1 degrees in the lifetime of kids being born today. And the, the build back better bit, ironically, doesn't include fixing the ecosystem damage that's still happening as we speak today that is the cause of, of viruses like COVID entering the human population. So building that better is a start, but the better needs to be set with a target about saying, is this better good enough to deal with the threats and challenges to nature, people, well-being, and climate that we know exist today and are coming down the road towards us? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think when we named our podcast, Build Back Better seemed like a nice catchphrase, nice hashtag. And since then, it's been co-opted by all sorts of politicians, movements that we perhaps don't align with completely. I appreciated what you were saying there about attitude to risk. And it made me think about this word resilience that we talk about and how our mission at For the Region is to create resilience in our region to deal so that we're better able to adapt and cope with all sorts of emergencies that we know are coming down the line so we know climate emergency is coming and then part of that is going to be all sorts of economic and social and political upheavals and challenges and you know our mission is to make sure that we're as a region more resilient and better able to adapt so I think that's what you were saying in terms of attitude to risk it's like not to rule out any risk disaster is is coming one way or the other but actually how we are better able to respond and react when things go wrong like looking out for your adventurers when you're out kayaking yeah and I suppose so to to give a couple of quick stories on the resilience piece so like many young people in St. David's, I spent time on the lifeboat crew. And in effect, you want the the captain of the crew, the skipper, the coxswain, wants to be able to have a resilient crew. So you need to have resilience built into the crew. But to do that, everyone on the crew needs to be able to do all of the jobs because you're never sure who's going to turn up because you might be out of town or whatever. So when your maroons used to go off or the pager goes off and you turn up, the, the, the cox has to pick the right people for the job. But the resilience is built by upscaling everyone to the right level. And, and similarly, in, in, other, in other work we've done around safety and rescue, resilience comes from having all the skills that are needed before they're needed. And, and, but the resilience is, is, can, has to be contextual. So, so if we know there's a risk whereby if businesses aren't all aligned behind a carbon zero target, they were more likely to fail, all the, all the resilience needs to say, every business needs this. And again, and that would mean that every civic leader in the for the region area, every civic leader would be common, would be carbon or climate literate. Because if they weren't, you wouldn't be able to expect them to make decisions that would lead towards resilience, because they'd be talking about things they didn't know about. Yet right now, there's no requirement for elected members or officers or the businesses they grant or support to be climate literate. So for me, there are things like that become anti-resilient or they become they tend to increase fragility rather than resilience because you have well-intentioned people with the wrong information making decisions about future generations. Yeah, interesting. So you've talked there about civic leaders and I know you do a lot of work with business leaders in terms of consultancy for companies and CEOs to transform their businesses into more sustainable models. Talk to us a bit about that. Good question. What a great topic. So a really good example, and I want to kind of reference that by coming back to the Build Back Better piece that they started with. But not not so long back in the world of business, there used to be a thing called CSR, or Corporate Social Responsibility. And Corporate Social Responsibility was your opportunity to put a smile on the face of community by giving something back. And you get to look good and you feel like a good matriarch or a patriot, nearly always a patriarch. And look what we did for community. We've got a community fund or we did this and that whilst actually doing nothing to change your core business. And for a long, long time, that was the coolest thing in town. And luckily that's been put out to pasture largely. And for bigger businesses, that's been replaced by a framework or terminology called ESG, which stands for Environment, 
and social governance. And the big investment firms are really rapidly moving towards ESG being a framework against which they can determine how good a business is. And, there's, and it's to be a good ESG respected business, you need to have good reporting about your impact and so on. And to, the problem is, is that it's a classic case of building back better because the businesses that are scoring highly on that essentially just good at filling in forms. So the highest rankers in some of those areas are amazing well-being businesses like British American Tobacco or BP. But, they're just, but they can tick the boxes of showing to investors that they're being responsible, but of course they're not. So, so I think the, the real challenge for big businesses is to work out how they stay relevant when people like you get set loose on making local communities more resilient. And one of my favorite examples of this is to look at the way that you know, the big supermarkets used to get planning permission on the basis of, look how many jobs we're gonna create. But what the planners didn't get told was the average of 250 jobs that got lost for every supermarket that opened. And one of my favorite businesses of all time is a, is a supermarket in Brighton called Hisby, H-I-S-B-E.co.uk. Hisby stands for how it should be. And they're supermarket revolutionaries. And you walk into Hisby and it just kind of go, this is a cool store. Just feels like Whole Foods. It's kind of half the stores unwrapped. They have 140 local suppliers within three miles of the store. Their smallest suppliers who might support, supply Dawn's devilish sauce, whatever, get paid in four days. And they put, they put 11.5 times the value, pound for pound, back into their community that Tesco does. So if you're a big supermarket right now, the chief executive of a big supermarket, and asking, and your entire business model is built around big distribution centers and long supply chains and everything else. And someone proves that you can make business with a model that puts 11 and a half times more value into the community. Which of those businesses should communities be shopping in? Or if you're Kellogg's, no matter how many good sustainability things you do, if you still sell Cocoa Pops and Frosties and God knows how many other sugar-coated cereals, you cannot say that you're serious about sustainability. So the big challenge for CEOs is to work out how to catch up and how to move forwards while still paying back, you know, often like, you know, 8% annual returns that investors have asked for in tough times. So that one of the groups I'm part of now partners, it's an international sustainability consultancy working with really big businesses, you know, multi-billion pound businesses to help them shift their business models in a way that builds the kind of asset-based community, the resilience capacity that is so vital if communities want to take charge of this. So I think the, the ground is shifting. And the big challenge we've got is that a lot of the small businesses that have the capacity to really disrupt the market can't grow fast enough or won't grow fast enough in the next 10 years to address the climate issues. And the big businesses are maybe not ready to make that change either. And we need to work out how to do the combination of that to deliver on climate and optimize things for local community. Are you hopeful about that? I mean, I think about when you were speaking, I was thinking about the kind of greenwashing or, you know, when you see a, a big company like Amazon advertising about how they've got a few electric vehicles in their fleet or something as though they've, you know, solved all the world's problems with those sort of gestures. I mean, are you hopeful if we're asking these major corporations to completely change their business models? Are you optimistic about that? Do you see progress being made? 
I guess what, what gives me most optimism is the fact that most of the cool stuff just hasn't been tried yet. It's just like, you know, oh, I didn't realize there's a fifth gear in this car or a sixth gear. And people have been kind of winding the car along in second or third. And to give an example of that, so one of, one of the projects I'm really proud to be part of is a thing called Wales Transition Lab. And that's a, that's a project being run with colleagues from a wider organization called North Star Transition. And the question we ask through North Star is to say, when we knew so much about what was happening, why did we do so little? And when we chose to act, why did it make so little difference? And, and, the, the, and the kind of the picture we paint people is to imagine that there's a, there's a giant plexiglass sphere filled inside with lots of smaller spheres. And inside the spheres are all the kind of community organizations that you and I spend time, and they can see out of them. And they know that the sphere that they're in is rolling towards the edge of a cliff. And none of them want to go off the cliff, but try as though they might, they just can't quite organize themselves to rock the sphere by moving in time to get it to change course. Because someone ends up being, oh, sorry, I was on the phone. What did you say now? Or they've gone to the toilet or whatever else. But the, at the minute, we just seem to be unable to orchestrate the movement of communities and small organizations sufficiently fast and with enough commitment to change the course of that sphere. And that's about, of course, the metaphor is about changing, harnessing the power of community groups to change the direction of the economy. And so within Wales Transition Lab, we're playing at the interface between food, nature, and well-being, and work out what would happen if you try to optimize the impact that each of those could have on each other. And so and the, the, the irony being is that the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has this requirement to optimize, uh, optimize all of the things you do within all seven goals. But for understandable reasons, public sector particularly has never looked at what optimum is because they haven't had the time to look at it. They don't know where to go find it. They haven't got the Guinness Book of Cool Shits as a reference point. They don't spend time, as you and I do, hanging out with interesting people of whom now and again, people go, wow, that's a brilliant idea. So you'd think that, the, I think I'm sure there's some research I came across the other day saying that there was a relationship between, what was it, between food and health, apparently. What you eat has an impact on food, on health, incredible. You, but the farming community and the health community would appear to have never had a serious strategic discussion. About, ah, you do patients, you spend 300 million quid a year on unavoid, unavoidable cost of type two diabetes, oh, weird. We're short on cash. I wonder if there's a connection to be made. What's the relationship between care farming and access to land for conservation projects? And what dent might that make in Wales' gross 7.2 billion pound a year cost of mental health? 2,600 pounds per person for every man, woman and child in Wales every year is the gross cost of mental health in Wales. How much of that could be slowed down by giving people better access to farms and land in the right way that also pays the farmer for different things. So with North Star Transition, we're, we're starting conversations with likely partners who've just never happened to be in the room at the same time and created the space for them to listen to each other in different ways and say, huh, how much of that 300 million pounds a year of avoidable type two diabetes cost could we crack if we got communities and food producers and stores and restaurants and growers and health boards etc 
to get into, a into, a, into their sphere and agree to move it at the same time. So we're really hopeful that some of those conversations could be incredibly fruitful in terms of the, to pardon the pun, in terms of the benefit they can bring on that wider health piece. And of course that links through then to community growing, to community retail, to the Hisby store, the housing associations could run, etc. I think that gives me hope as well, when you realise that a lot of these problems that seem really intractable, difficult problems, actually when you find yourself in these meetings at higher levels of decision making that some of these fundamental questions just have never been asked or those conversations haven't been had and then you think well that that's quite simple then you know just bang a few heads together get people talking to each other that wouldn't otherwise have talked to each other and I think that's you know a, a big part of our work is trying to break down those silos and and create spaces where conversations happen that bring in a whole range of diverse perspectives so you can just see a challenge from a few different angles and then as you say and, uh, it's amazing yeah. the solutions that might emerge and, and I think in terms of bringing those views in you know we've talked previously about the role that that young people have in in catalyze in being catalysts to that both through the amazing work that's increasingly happening and starting to I think I get the sense every week young people in Wales are finding their feet more as their networks build and so on about, about taking action on climate and biodiversity and stuff. But there are, there are two pieces of work. One is in Letter of Nature, letters last week, last, last week, last year, showing that in terms of shifting conservative, small C conservative dads' views on climate change, the biggest impact was not 15 year old boys who are like, you know, taller and stronger, but 15 year old girls. 15 year old girls could say things to dads in a way that would make them shift their mind in a way that boys didn't. Earlier this year, Ella's Kitchen, the baby food company, did some research onto kids' impact on parents. And their, their research showed that 64% of business leaders had changed the focus of their sustainability efforts in their, at work because of conversations they'd had with their family around the dining table. So I'm really hopeful that if we together kind of harness the, the, the collective power of young people to positively influence parents' behavior, by giving them examples of what's possible and, and finding a way of not influencing parents through criticism or fear or nagging, but through love and empathy and compassion, then, then kids can say to parents, you know, dad, you've got a rubbish car, far more times than anyone from work would dare do. And I think if, we, and so our goal through all the work we're doing in education is to find an answer to this question to say, if you couldn't fail, what level of confidence would you want young people to have about their ability to make a difference? And, and our view is to say that they have a right to earn an unshakable confidence in their ability to get their voices heard and actions seen in relation to making a difference. And the best way I think we can do that, and I think for the region have got a huge opportunity with this, is to take real world challenges from the businesses that you and I talk to and drop those in curriculum ready format into schools and in the communities around where the kids live so that the kids get to stop doing maths completely on things to which their teachers already know the answer and instead do do maths on things that matter that make a difference to human life whether that's whether that's climate damage or asthma levels in relation to car idling time or nature counts or plastic but let's give them real challenges to fix with an opportunity to pitch those back to the people who for those who answers actually matter. And I think doing that at scale 
could set fire to an innovation capacity in schools that in relatively short term would change the parents' behavior, but more importantly, create really fertile grounds to grow that kind of HISBE type of relocalized, re-energized local economy because kids can see opportunity and have the confidence to put their hand up and know how to make action happen. So something like that involves real buy-in from, I don't know, whoever it is that writes the curriculum, you know, getting into schools, changing the way that schools work. And some of these challenges just seem beyond the realm of those of us working in the community to make change happen. It's like, how do we get into those conversations where we can actually influence those big decisions about what our kids are taught at school? What's your advice for communities and for individuals and small businesses that have great ideas and intentions we'd love to do more of this stuff how can we start to tackle these big systemic challenges in the ways so, that you've described no, no great 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 question so the one of the areas that i consult in and so specialize in is, is, a, is a is a design science called biomimicry which takes inspiration from 3.8 billion years of evolution and said oh, how, how would nature ask that question and and one of the best examples i think the answer to that is the is the humble blackberry. You know, the fruit is not, the, the, the sweetness that we eat in our crumbles, and still at this time of year, if we're lucky, if we're frozen enough. The fruit is the, is the incentive for the blackbirds and other birds to pick it up. The seed is the pay, the distribution of the seed in a different place in a pile of bird poo, fertilizer, is the reward that the plant gets for the bird taking the fruit. And so the black, what the blackberry bush has done is designed its fruit to be really attractive to the people who want to take its messages. And they can't, the blackbirds aren't, don't find them palatable when the seeds aren't ripe, because they're still sour, which means they don't get raw blackberries picked at the wrong time. And our job with teachers, for instance, or counselors or anyone else, is to make the messages that we, that we create as tantalizing as the end of the branch blackberries, those first ones to ripen that are often the sweetest, by really thinking what makes, what's that sweetness look like for other people? One of my colleagues at Now Partners to say, if you want to get your messages heard, you need to be the tastiest thing in the jungle. So you need to be the tastiest thing. People want to go, right, I want a bite of that. And that means really understanding what the issues are for them. You know, and, and in the case of teachers, that's appreciating how incredibly busy they are, how under pressure they are, um, and at the same time, realizing that they're still there, that they're still committed. So make it easy, make it so easy for them to put this stuff into the classroom because it engages the kids more. The kids get better results, they're more motivated, more engaged and take some of that pressure off as well, give a massive reward for the teacher. So it's really thinking through, how do you make those challenges as sweet a fit, a Cinderella slipper, you know, on the right foot, so to speak. So you can go, go God, that feels amazing. And, it, that, and it, which is about applying principles like human-centered design and service design to the way these things are created. So we're not trying to push things into an already full system, but, but actually reduce pressure because they're really well designed. The kids love them, parents love them, teachers like them, and businesses get engaged because they can suddenly get inspiration. The kids are, are, you know, are interested in what they're doing too. Good advice there. And so tell us about, I know education is a real passion of yours and has been for a long time. Tell us about the work you're doing with the health board around future generation practitioners. About two years ago, we developed a program for one of our, one of our education clients. These are lucky kids from privileged backgrounds 
but one of the good things for us is that, it, that we get paid to, by, by schools that can afford it to develop ideas we can then give away to free brothers. And we're working with a bunch of kids to design a new hospital, a billion pounds spent on a new hospital. But that, so that gave us some of the thinking about this. And, and in Wales, there are about you know, eight to 10 billion pounds of the new hospitals will be built in the next 10 years, um, including one in, in West Wales, you know, more, more than likely. And, and of course, those hospitals have been worked in for their entire careers by people who haven't yet even chosen their career paths. And, and it occurred to us that there's this kind of irony that in the world of sport or drama or many other areas of human performance, from a very young age, five, six or seven years old, you can end up a training programme that'll take you as a footballer, dancer, singer, whatever. If you happen to choose your healthcare as your chosen career, your heart is set on that. I was talking to a nurse the other day. So when did you know? She said, about 11. Other than doing a first aid course, which is still a good thing to do, there's no training. Despite the fact that our well-being depends on those people being the most rounded, progressive healthcare professionals we could imagine. So what we what we did working with this is Cardiff and Vale Health Board and um, Howard Thar Health Board working together with TYF to design a future generations practitioner program that will train 12 to 18 year olds initially who set, who set the hearts on a career in healthcare and teach them about planetary health and prevention. Planetary health is about a deep understanding of the relationships between the environment and human health, ranging from long-term impacts of ecosystems through to air quality, food, farming, soil loss, and so on, and recognizing the intertwined codependent relationship of those. And then the prevention piece is about how does community engagement and activism play through in terms of reducing mental health costs because people feel valued and part of a community and therefore less stressed. So we've trialed the program, had amazing results early on, and are now in the process of talking to deans and the medical directors about how to fully get that off the ground. And our goal is to get, at a UK level, is to get 20% of the 200,000 people, 12 to 18, who are going to end up in health, working together to solve real-world challenges now, so that by the, by the time that they start formally the health training, they're already kind of at black belt level. And they'll be supported by early career, mid-career and just retired medics and nurses and healthcare professionals to do kind of cross-generational coaching on here's how to work, hey, I'll introduce you to Dawn, whatever else, so that they really get a chance to grow and flourish as change makers as well as challenges. Yeah, that sounds just fantastic. And so much that we need to do to help young people find their their calling and how desperately we need their influence, their expertise, their new perspectives on it all. Um, the earlier we can engage them in tackling some of these problems, yeah. uh, the better. And I, and I think this is, and I think one of the things that's key for me in this, Dawn, is that it's not about saying, oh, it's up to you to sort it out to kids, but recognising that we can give them a lift up, to, as you're doing, to get engaged in civic matters, to say, this is how to do it. And things like the National Nature Service, you know, very much setting out to do that kind of work as well. Tell me about the National Nature Service. So National Nature Service has been coordinated by the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission and working with WCBA, bringing together all of the kind of usual suspects in that space to reimagine what a Welsh version of like Biden's Conservation Corps might look like that could give people of all ages access to to high quality volunteering experiences for one, that fully use up your potential. And whether that's because you wanna be a data ring, you know, a data specialist inputting bird data, 
or planting trees or doing whatever, that it uses up whatever capacity. You know, if you want to go and do something mindless, do that too. But if you want to do something mindful, then that's the choice, as well as give really clear stepping stones. We're hoping for young people so that if they do want to get a career in nature, either as a forester or as an ecologist, as a, as a GP working with nature on patients or as an adventure instructor, they know what the really clear stepping stones are that will help them go into that. Because for understandable reasons, careers officers don't know much about jobs in co-steering, despite the fact that there are 8,000 people working full-time in Wales in the outdoors as, as adventure instructors. So, so there's that route, as well as saying to young people, whatever job you want to get, there are skills around teamwork and leadership and problem solving that you can learn in the outdoors and take with you into any role that you want in terms of brownie points. And I think the work we've done with these top colleges is really interesting in this space because the, the profs at Cambridge and Oxford who work with say, as soon as you're sat down, the minute you're sat down in the interview chair, whatever you grades, whatever grades you've got, five A's doesn't matter, they don't care. They're, they're, they're so uninterested in the grades you've got because the only thing that matters once you're sat down in that chair is what makes you different. And the grades aren't that. So your job, if you want to get interesting work, is to make yourself different and stand out because of what you've done, not what you hope to do in three years' time. So I think the National Nature Service for young people could be an invaluable way of kind of collecting those backpack skills that make people go, wow, that's really interesting, and then start our questions that end up getting good work. So it's early doors yet, but there's a, an amazing group of people having lots of different conversations, including health, conservation, tree planting, flood damage prevention and skills. So it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, as a small employer, I completely agree with that. What you want to hear from a, a young applicant to a new position is what, what they think, what they've got to say, what they've, you know, what life experience, how interested are they in what's going on in the world around them? And, and you and I, you and I, Donald, both know, we both know Paul, Paul Matthews over in Monmouthshire. And I was talking to Paul the other day and he was saying, when I interview people, I ask him this question to say, how are you going to be a pain in the ass to me? Because if you're not, if you don't know how you're going to be a pain, you don't know what you stand for. And I just think it's a lovely question about saying, what is, what, what are the, what are the problems you're going to bring me as an employer? Yeah. Because it's a great question to think, I'm going to bring a problem because actually our problem is about, about justice or equal pay or about our use of plastics or whatever else is. But be prepared to come to that job, ask it, bring in a problem that you want to be part of solving. Yeah, and I think we keep young people in a silo too often, don't we? And actually, we're all having these very interesting conversations and particularly, you know, for the region, we're out having conversations about all sorts of things and really working hard at the moment this year to involve more young people in those discussions because you know we might think they're not interesting to young people but of course they are and of course we we've got so much to learn as well from what that perspective will bring no absolutely Dawn. and i guess and one thing that occurs to me is this you know, and you'll know this better than most people you know doing the kind of events that you do that there are many adults who will die before they ever put their hand up in a public meeting and would probably rather die than do so. And that's, that's a fear thing. And I think if we can help young people short circuit that fear and just realize that there's, no, and, and show them the techniques and how to do this so that at every meeting they can put their hand up and ask the questions that the expert goes, that's a great question and get proper discussion going and really know how to do that in a way that they're not being a smart ass, they're not doing anything else, but just they're there as concerned, informed citizens. They can take a huge amount more influence 
to their corner of the world than is currently given them. And I think it's our job collectively to give them the skills to do that in the shortest time possible. Yeah, create those opportunities. National Nature Service sounds like a fantastic initiative. We're involved in the Wellbeing Economy Alliance for Wales, and there are some amazing young people on board with that who have also come through the Climate Cymru campaign as well, and some really inspiring voices. You know, but they're, they're the exception rather than the rule, and we just need to, you know, make, make those opportunities more available to people. Well, so here's, here's one idea that we can maybe play on together, or who know, and who knows, might, might pick up on this. So... A couple of weeks back, the energy company Good Energy recently put out a board, a board notice for um, new board members being recruited to the Future Generations Board must be of school age. And, and what would be lovely to see perhaps in the, in, the, in the region would be to see if we could get all of the bigger businesses appointing Future Generations Boards to oversee them. And then maybe at a wider level have, you know, like a nature board or an oceans board who represent the benefits of those of that part of nature for you know to speak on that to businesses who impact it and i think really give them a, a, an avenue to really get the, an amplifier you know the old-fashioned megaphone to get those voices out i think could be fantastic yes that's a great initiative let's uh, see what we can do with that i've heard you say before and i think you've said it to me in an email that given the climate emergency that we are in you don't spend your time on anything that is not related to tackling the climate emergency. How's that going for you? What does that mean in your life? How does it affect your decisions and how you spend your time? I suppose having made the decision to really focus my time where it feels like it matters, that it's, it's incredibly easy to say no to stuff that doesn't kind of resonate with that. A couple of things that I've noticed is that since COVID, there are people who were business and civic leaders who are kind of nudging towards the need to do something, who have really realized at a quite a visceral level that, that doing little stuff anymore isn't gonna cut it. And that no amount of incremental change in many areas will make any significant difference to biodiversity or climate. And how the, the changes that we require require that like full-blooded whole body commitment. And I found that, that, that ironically, that there's a combination of kind of the ability to talk about bold ideas like, why wouldn't you want to make every child in Wales food literate? You know, what's the downside of every child being, in Wales being food literate by 12? So they can take a love of food and health and well-being into their families. And you could do it for free. And at the same time, not being bashful about the fact you may not have a clue on how to make that happen. Because actually the, the how stuff is relatively easy on all of these issues. It's the how bit is not the problem. And this is the risk of the down, the worst kind of build back better is to kind of build back 2% better. If we set out sometimes to build back 40 or 50 times better, suddenly people go, huh, I'm in, because it suddenly gets exciting. And I think people are drawn to exciting stories, not incremental change. So I think for me, that find collectively, I think this is for all of us, to find a way of putting that kind of flag in the ground about ambition to say, Huh, wouldn't it be good if we could get, if we could achieve that goal of kids getting their voices heard or feeling confident or, you know, have every single child having access to food, food literacy or whatever. And then it doesn't take, not everyone's got to put the whole body into that. But if the goal's clear enough, I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. That, I think, is how change starts. And so... You know, it's an election year here in Wales, and I think what you're talking about there is real scale of ambition. Sorry? 
that hadn't passed my attention. <laughs> no, sometimes I wax lyrical on, you know, how amazingly lucky we are here in Wales to have the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and to be able to make decisions, choose our own path, do things differently. Um, do you see the scale of ambition that's needed in Welsh Government? What do you hope for going forward? Is it a question of independence? Can we do a lot of these things already? We're just not choosing to do them? Or is it happening? Great, no, great question. And I suppose, so I'm like you, I think, I think a lot of the time, particularly on education, health and environment, for instance, I think, thank God, thank God we've got those things, you know, are are devolved, are devolved decisions in Wales, and particularly knowing a lot of the people involved in that, you kind of go, I know that they are really good people who really care, trying to do what they're doing. And, you know, and, and as you will have seen in the last few weeks, even the new Welsh government consultations or discussions around, you know, manufacturing, around circular economy, around resilient economy, there's some really good stuff coming out, written by people we both know who, who really get this stuff. And at the same time, the government by itself can never be that ambitious for this stuff. Because what, what I can do is, is say, I don't know how to get, I've got no idea. And, and, and in the right room, I can sound quite smart by saying that. But, um, but it's quite hard for politicians to do the same because it makes them sound stupid. And I can say, I don't know how to get there, but hang on, if I bring in Dawn and Phil and Jenny and do so-and-so, I think they could crack it. But that means working in a really much more agile, non-controlled way. And that's quite hard in the world of politics because of course politics means about, about not rocking the boat having controlled delivery so i think our job as businesses is to trailblaze the space and be, to be like the mine clearance teams that make safe space for the politicians to step into and then then claim the stories for their own it's never been politicians job to lead because they can't it's their job to be the champions of what's already known to be possible because someone else has made that the case and then let them engage the wider kind of body politic and the sort of service behind making that happen. And I think, you know, if we've lost and get stuck in that space of going, or oh, it's their job to lead this, in a world where you, as a politician, you cannot get too far in front of your electorate, because otherwise you get, you get isolated. Whereas business leaders can step way in front. And I think to, we need to find a better way of working together to have those conversations about really scaling up, particularly things like the, you know, the optimization of food or relocalizing those bits of the economy, and a lot of stuff that you exist to do as an organization is about saying, if you optimize the food economy, what difference could it make to Southwest Wales? It would be enormous, but, but government cannot do that by itself. So yes, I'm, I'm pleased that we've got a level of devolved privilege in Wales. I know that loads of people elsewhere go look at what Wales are doing and they're genuinely envious of even what they think we're doing as well as what we actually are doing. But we're nowhere near as ambitious enough yet, nowhere near about the scale of change. And I guess part of that means helping politicians reframe that idea of growth to be growth of the thing that matters around regenerative enterprises, about regenerative activities, rather than pursuing that kind of degenerative growth, which at the end of the day only ends up taking us to a worse place. Yes, interesting. That comes back to the, the purpose of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, redefining you know, what progress is. And what you've said there, it puts the power back into all our hands, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to feel when you're working kind of at community level and with small businesses and in small networks that what we're doing 
can't make enough of a difference, that the, the challenges we face are vast, global in scale, and that what we're doing in our small sort of spheres of influence is inadequate. But I appreciate what you've said there, that actually it's blazing a trail and it's clearing the minds and it's de-risking and sort of prototyping ideas that then can later be scaled. Is that how you see it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you'll be familiar, Dawn, with the, with the Marion Williamson quote about, you know, saying, you know, it's, it, it, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And it's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And we, we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented and fabulous? And who are we not to be? And I think that, you know, standing up and saying, I can make this happen, may not feel that well sometimes. But actually, particularly with young people, I think we need to find that voice to say, actually, this isn't actually that complicated. It's not even that difficult. There's not even that many steps to making some of these things happen. And you definitely don't need to know the answer when you step out on a journey towards solving these things. And I think, you know, part of the problem we've had in education is that we're expected to say, show me your workings. And with a lot of the big challenges we're trying to work out, I genuinely have no idea how to fix them. But I do know how to start them. And that starts with conversations about common goals and taking first steps. And those first steps, as you know, build information. Information builds confidence. And from that, you can eventually maybe get a plan together but you can be well the way down the line before we start doing that and i think letting go of the need for having all the steps planned but just getting started asking questions gathering information suddenly turns things that are horribly kind of vague dark and complex into something that just becomes complicated and then it becomes something you can put on a list and start with action number one and slowly work your way through Thank you. Yeah, I think I completely agree. And it's, it is starting with questions rather than answers and asking those questions of broad, diverse groups of people and businesses and organisations with different perspectives and trusting that process, not feeling like we've got to have all the answers, but just doing our well, the work that's ours to do in all of this. I feel like we could carry on talking well, for a long a, time. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat as we have. And I think you know, that, you know, from where you started from, you know, as, as an organisation to be in a position now to be connecting to so many different people, you know, and the work you're doing in transport and so on, does give that opportunity to really try and recognise, even just at, at this corner of Wales, how much is already in our gift if we choose to use it. And I think you know, all those different layers of kind of heavy industry, of kind of oil, you know, oil and manufacturing, through to tourism and farming and health, we've got a massive opportunity to do things differently. So I think it's like bring it on, but stay bold and get started, I think is my mission. Thank you. Yeah, everything's connected and we all need to work together. So keep us in the loop with everything you're doing and uh, we'll do the same if that's all right with you. We'll no, uh, keep in touch. That'd be a pleasure but to do. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we'll see yeah, you again soon. Take care, okay, bye-bye. Bye for now, Andy, bye for now.